Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 21st episode of the Bad MotoGP show. We are reviewing the uh, Malaysian GP, which uh, took place yesterday. And uh, it's it's good to have finally those uh, those overseas races, to have them uh, behind us, because uh, all of my weekends are so messed up from this uh, and my sleep schedule. This one was okay, because Malaysia is a bit better than Australia, but yeah. I'm I'm glad. <laughs> so Keelan, you enjoyed the you enjoyed the races? Yes, absolutely, Leo. Hello everybody. It is great to be back with, of course, the Bad Moto GP podcast. And like Leo said, we are back from overseas. We are back from Sepang. And I gotta say, I didn't miss the time difference. I really, really did not. But the racing was brilliant as it always is. Tons to talk about and looking forward to getting into it as always. Yeah, I love convenient times and uh, obviously the European times are very convenient, but I also love the American races. It's sad that we only have two because on prime time, it's always nice to see a MotoGP, but to wake up at uh, 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. to watch a Moto3 race is always tough uh, because it's so damn early. I mean, Australia was even worse, but uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, glad we uh, we are done and we had some good races, a lot to talk about. And uh, I would like to start with the two gentlemen on the uh, background, Enea Bastianini and uh, it's actually Merit, you have to point the other way. Yes, that's it. Enea <laughs> uh, Bastianini and Peko Banyaya. And uh, it was once again a fun battle. And still, Inea doesn't give a flying fuck about uh, Peko's championship. So, um, yeah, do you think there were team orders in place, or do you think Inea Bastinini gave his 100%? Oh, this is an interesting question. Uh, first of all, it was a brilliant race. Like you said, Inea Bastinini does not give a fuck. Had a brilliant race, as he always does. Um as for this question as to whether there were team orders, obviously we saw team mapping on Anaya's dashboard and we're all trying to work out what's going on, basically. Um, do I think there were team orders? I like to think there weren't, but then that's just the optimist in me. I just hope there isn't any because it's the reason I don't like Formula One, one of many. Um, not looking at you in particular, Ferrari, but I'm looking at you. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I'm hoping that there wasn't team orders. I'm hoping it was something to do with maybe tire preservation or something like that. But at the same time, it wouldn't surprise me if it was team orders. At the end of the day, Ducati have got the manufacturing title, but they want the rider's title as well. And the only way to get that is to ensure that Peko wins. Well, really, that's the best way they're going to do it. So my answer really is to answer your question, Leo. I hope there wasn't. But if it emerged that it was a team order, it wouldn't overly shock me either. NA has already proven himself entirely this season. He really doesn't have any more to prove. So if he's just preserving the team's momentum, it wouldn't shock me. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a particular problem with team orders because uh, when you're in a situation uh, like Ducati is right now, you haven't won the riders' title in 15 years. And you put so much money and so much effort into the sport that 
it's only natural that you want to do everything possible to uh, to ensure you get the title because the last thing that you would want is Peko and uh, Inia crashing into each other and Fabio would have won the race and now the title picture almost would have seemed impossible for Peko. So I understand team orders. And also for everybody complaining about it, if you're working and your boss tells you something, you do it because otherwise you get fired. And especially if the stakes are so high. So um, I don't necessarily see the problem with uh, team orders in general, because everybody would do it, especially in a situation where Ducati is right now. But uh, it it gets worse when there are eight bikes on the grid and those eight bikes happens to be the best bikes on the grid. So if you have just teammates, okay, cool, I can live with it. But the eight bikes make it a little bit... Uh, I don't want to say boring because the race wasn't boring, but you know what I mean. And um, regarding Inea, I think Inea didn't give a fuck about uh, about team orders or something, uh, whatever Ducati told him, because A, he still had a mathematical shot uh, at the title during the race, because if Peko happened to crash, and he would have won the race. Uh, he could have been a world champion in Valencia if the same happened again. And if Fabio uh, managed to fuck it up as well, because uh, it, it's a long shot, but it's still possible. Everything can happen in motorsport. And uh, I think that Inea wants to prove a point that he's the number one rider going into next year. But I also think that he's not stupid. And he could have made the move into turn 10 in the last lap, but he didn't because it was dangerous. But I believe if no championship was on the line and if it wasn't Peko, let's say it was Alex Rins or whoever, he would have gone for the move 100%. I think he was smart about it because the last thing he would have wanted is to take out uh, Peko. And uh, yeah, nevertheless, what's the truth? Only Enea Bastianini knows. But um, if I was Enea Bastianini, I would be very vo vocal about how I let Peko win just to fuck with his head and be like, yeah, I'm the best rider here. I just let you win. Um, but yeah, I think in his post-race interviews, you could have read between the lines that he didn't give his 100%. It was like, if there's a move and it's a safe option, I'll do it. But if it's too much of a risk to overtake Peko, I won't do it. That's how I interpret it and interpret it. And uh, yeah, but at the end of the day, only Inea, um, Inea knows. But I don't have a particular problem if there were team orders in place because I understand it. And the problem isn't necessarily the team orders. The problem is a larger one. Yeah, I think that's an excellent interpretation, Leo, and I think it's a very fair one as well. I think when it comes to Nea Bastianini, I think he's always capable of pushing the envelope the way very few riders can. And I think you make another very good point about the entry into turn 10, which is really what we're talking about here. And look, I don't think there's anything wrong with what Nea did at all, really. Um, I think he was very smart to hold back. Because at the end of the day, let's say he does make that move and him and Banyaya are wiped out. He's the biggest villain in Ducati's history if that happens because they throw away a multi-multi-million euro effort to finally get the writer's title. So you're absolutely right. My gripe with... I probably should have rephrased this better earlier because you were absolutely right. 
My issue isn't with team orders necessarily if it's teammates. That's not my problem. If it was Jack Miller in an A's position, for example, I absolutely would understand it. I think that would be very fair. My issue is probably more with the number of bikes in the grid and being able to command them as if they're a fleet. I think that's probably my issue more than the, the rider themselves. But as for the race itself, I think Anaya wrote brilliantly the way he always does. I think he was very smart and very mature as well, not to ridiculously go for a gap to force through if it isn't necessarily there. But the other thing that happens here is that Enea Bastianini doesn't lose from this situation because you have to think about what Leo just said. Say he goes for that gap and he wins the race. Okay, great, he wins the race. Paco still gets second. Even though he doesn't win the race, there's, there's no psychological uh, hole that's being buried here because Paco will be thinking in the back of his head, could Anaya have gone for that? Could he have beaten me again? And that sets up next season brilliantly for Anaya Bastianini. So in this situation, even though he might not have won this race, he certainly didn't lose. And he is poised brilliantly for next year. Yeah. And I think it's kind of odd that uh, every race in Nebastianini has the best rear tire preservation on the entire grid. And co coincidentally, on this race where he shouldn't win from a Ducati perspective, he ha doesn't have the rear tire and he turns into Jack Miller, which to me is kind of odd, but okay, maybe uh, maybe this is the truth. Maybe it's... Uh, It's a huge uh, coincidence, but maybe it was just an excuse. Who knows? And um, yeah, with the manufacturer orders, I mean, Peko did a brilliant job. Peko did everything he could. He had an amazing start. It's like the best start I've ever seen. I can't remember anybody having a better start. And um, he wrote a brilliant race. He made no mistakes and Inea was just as good as him and maybe didn't pull the trigger because it was Peko. But if it was Fabio, 100%, he would have pulled the trigger. And uh, yeah, Peko still deservingly won the race. And with the manufacturer orders, the problem isn't necessarily that there are any in place because I think Yamaha would be doing the same if they had riders oh, no uh, outside, um, outside of the... Uh, Top, oh, not inside of the top 15, but they don't. Sad. Um, Honda would be doing the same. And uh, yeah, so I understand it. But the problem is if you have eight bikes and those eight bikes happen to be the most competitive on the grid, then you have situations with Jack Miller, who is maybe helping Peko. You, um, you have situations with Inea, who is not being stupid. And Marco Bezecchi, who's obviously helping uh, Peko. I mean, Luca Marini, I don't know if he did anything, but then you can uh, play these games with uh, different Ducatis overtaking the competitors. You know, it's it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit sad that uh, a pure race gets a little bit dictated by one manufacturer this way. But on the other hand, it's not Ducati's fault. It's not Ducati's fault Yamaha only has two bikes on the grid next season. It's not Ducati's fault that all of the other bikes uh, compared to Ducati are a piece of shit. Maybe with the exception of uh, the Aprilia and the Suzuki. But they have only two riders and they have their own problems. So, yeah. 
it's it is what it is but uh i think the problem would be solved if every manufacturer had four bikes on the grid and that's it that would work brilliantly in my opinion but unfortunately we don't uh have these uh situations anymore yeah it's very very true and Look, my biggest issue with Ducati having eight bikes in the grid is the issue that I've always had with it. We don't want riders basically escorting other riders to win so they can win championships. We want people to be winning titles and winning races because they're the best rider on the grid that day. Uh, so that's that is really my issue with it. You know, we don't want the grid being manipulated mid race in order to ensure certain riders win. Now, look, if it was a Yamaha, if it was a Honda, you know they would do it. That's absolutely that's clear. Yamaha would do the same if they were in that position. Absolutely. The problem is the number of bikes. And look, we basically have Paco, who's likely going to be on pole for Valencia. We have Jorge Martin, we have Enea Bastianini, we have Bezzecki, and we have Marini, who are basically all going to form a bubble around Paco if they have to. And that's problematic because it's not what we want to see. But either way, Leo, you're you're again right. Look, it's not... Ducati's fault that they have eight bikes and everybody else only has two or four at the end of the day it is what it is it's up to Dorna to manage the grid that's their job and we'll see what happens next season with it I suppose yeah and I feel a little bit bad for Peko uh, in this sense that he wrote an absolute brilliant second half of the season he made one mistake which was Motegi which didn't turn out to be very costly and uh, all the other races, he just have been brilliant. He has been smart. And to get this a little bit tainted by uh, by the team orders, if they are in place or if they aren't in place, nobody knows, uh, except the people involved. But let's assume they are because there's a high possibility. It gets It takes a little bit away from his performance because if he had the same race, and it was against Fabio with the same outcome. We were we weren't sitting here and uh, discussing team orders. We were discussing that Peko won the championship on his own. He's such a gangster, yada yada yada. And that's a little bit sad, you know. It is sad, yeah. Because look, we don't want to take anything away from Peko. Peko is easily in the top two riders on the planet right now and to take something away from him is not something that i ever want to do because it would be totally unfair to him and all the incredible hard work and effort that he puts in the problem is that jacati are putting him in this position by having all these bikes on the grid it, it might be helping jacati but it's taking away the legitimacy of some riders wins and that's not what I want to see for Peko because I know he deserves to win the title if he does win it. Like you said, flawless second half of the season with the exception of Mategi. But then a lot of riders had issues at Mategi as well. It's the first time we've been there in three years. So the one thing I don't, well, one of many things I don't want to see is credit being taken away from brilliant riders just because of the volume of bikes in the grid that happen to be the best bikes in the grid. I hope it's something that ends up getting resolved in the future. But look, all Peko can do is win races. He's doing his job. It's up to Ducati and Dorna to really do theirs. Yeah. And um, regarding Valencia, I, uh, I've been to Valencia last year. First of all, it's an amazing track for all the fans. I really liked it. 
And uh, second of all, Ducati had a podium lock. So, I mean, it's not like Peko has to win. Basically, everything can happen except Fabio winning the race. If Fabio doesn't win the race, it doesn't matter what Peko does. And that will yeah. be the objective for Ducati. And they won't give a fuck if it's Enea, if it's Jorge Martin, if it's Jack Miller, if it's Peko. They don't care about uh, who wins the race. They only care that Peko will be world champion. And Peko will be world champion if Fabio doesn't win. And he crashes out. Yeah, I mean, like this, for Fabio, this is arguably the biggest single test he will ever face in his MotoGP career because he is facing an armada of Ducatis that are all out with one objective in mind next weekend, which is to stop Fabio Quartararo. Like you said, Peko doesn't have to win the race. He can comfortably finish third, fourth, fifth, sixth if he wants to. As long as Fabio doesn't win, Peko wins. And now you've got seven other Ducatis at your disposal to lock out Fabio Quartararo from winning. I mean, I don't like bringing up 2015 because I know a lot of people still feel very sore about it. But this is going to have to be a 2015 Valentino Rossi-esque performance from Fabio just to have any chance of winning. I mean, realistically, the odds are a 1,000 to 1 that Fabio even does this. Even if he somehow wins in Valencia, Peko only has to finish second or third. He still wins. Fabio basically has to win and pray that Peko Benyaya doesn't finish. That's the only way he retains his title. And you've got seven other Ducatis breathing down your exhaust pipes at every single turn. It makes for a hell of a race, but it is a mountain to climb for Fabio. I mean, we have 24 riders on the grid. Uh, eight of them are Ducatis, so we have 16 others. When you say you have like always, let's say you have three people who crash in a race. Then if Fabio wins and all the Ducatis let Peko pass and three people crash, he can walk to the finish line and uh, will be world champion. So, yeah, it's uh, it has to take like an engine blower because Peko won't crash. I don't see it because he's too smart. It's the same with Remy, you know, last year when he had to finish, uh, was it 13th? He finished 8th. Because he had to finish eighth. It's not like, and Moto 2 is oftentimes a little bit more dangerous in the mid pack, I would argue. And uh, yeah, as long as uh, Peko doesn't get wiped out in the first corner by some crazy accident, maybe Takanakagami again. Maybe or, uh, his, <laughs> or his engine uh, doesn't blow up, then he will be world champion. I mean, and there's no way he crashes. This, this would be so incredibly stupid. More stupid than Ayogura. Imagine if Mark just kamikazes Paco in the first corner. I guess <laughs> oh, he won't ever be able to uh, take a single foot into inside the Italian border if he does this. <laughs> he will be assassinated. It would be the most Mark Marquez thing ever to happen. Im- imagine the scenes of that happens. He will die going to Magello or San Marino. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but even if this happens, no way they let Fabio win the race, the other seven Ducatis, because they are just too good. 
Yeah, I mean, like we said, it is a Herculean task for Fabio to somehow try and pull this out of the bag. I don't think it's completely impossible, but boy, is it going to take a mixture of events to happen. I'd love to see it, though. Yeah, I'd love to see it, too, because it will be like the greatest uh, Uno reverse card pull in uh, MotoGP history. <laughs> oh, my God. And everybody thinks Max and Lewis in F1 was the best thing ever. This would top it so much. Yeah. Yeah, but um, back to the race. Fabio did everything he could, but it was evident that uh, that the Ducati is just better. I still believe that Peko is the better, is the, that Fabio is the better rider to Peko. But uh, I, you see why motorsport is a team sport. Yeah, you really, really do. And look, this season, I mean, the fact that Fabio is even still in the mix for this title is a tremendous credit to his ability because he should have been gone six or seven rounds ago, given how good this Ducati is and everything we've already discussed. The fact that he is taking this to the final day is bloody commendable because he should have been out of it a long, long time ago. And this season is in no way a disdain or a mark in Fabio because he has ridden that bike to the limits of what it can do and beyond. And the fact that he has not had a single helping hand from any other Yamaha is just testament to how much of a great, great rider he is. And look, Valencia is in no way defining for Fabio. This this race that we're talking about now in Sepang, he still did everything he could and somehow pulled a podium out of it. Fabio is the best rider on planet Earth. There is no debate about this for me. Yeah, and if Fabio didn't crash in Assen and if Fabio didn't have the mistake in Australia, he would be right in it. He the They would be basically equal on points and you ha that's this is what it takes, you know. Peko can quote unquote afford five DNFs over a season because the Ducati and he they're they're such a great team that he can win five or six races. Well, now he has seven races which he won, and um, Fabio has to be perfect in every race. There is no fuck up allowed, and exactly. he had. He had too many fuck ups, especially in the second half of the season. When you when you uh, see Assen, which was his first uh, one, then um, yeah, Silverstone was a little bit unlucky with the long lap, but still he made a little bit of a poor rear tire decision. But the big ones uh, are obviously Aragon. It's not his fault. Shit happens. Uh, same happened to Peko with uh, with Takanakagami in Barcelona. Then he had Thailand. Then he had Australia. Those are like the four races uh, where he didn't score any points, which, uh, yeah, which he can't afford because without them, he would have been world champion by now. Yeah. Yeah. Factually speaking, you're absolutely yeah. right. He would. And look, the thing is, I think with Fabio, um, I just think with the first incident that happened in Assen where he ran Alicia Spargo off track, I just think psychologically he just hasn't recovered from that point. And that's to be expected. You know, you got to remember, Fabio is carrying the weight of an entire factory's efforts on his shoulders every single weekend. 
To stumble and to struggle with the pressure is completely reasonable and normal for him. You know, you got to remember, he somehow won a title last year and he's still in the mix for one this year too. Um, I just, I think it's commendable that Fabio is even in this position because he should have been written off six or seven rounds ago, like I said. Uh, either way, I truly hope he has a better bike next year because he's done all he can. Um, uh, the mistakes, yes, he does need to get rid of those because you he can't afford one DNF in this championship, let alone five. But he'll learn from that. I'm confident he'll learn from that and he'll be better next year than he even has been this year. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the bad luck cancels each other out over a season. You have uh, Pego with all his all of his crashes. You have Fabio with all of his uh, zero pointers. I mean, uh, Fabio crashed those four times, and uh, Pego, I believe, five times. So it's basically the same. You get taken out by a rider once uh, with Takanakagami, Mark Marcus, and even Alasius Bagaro. He got taken out by his own mechanic with the electronic uh, mapping in Motiki. And uh, considering all of this. Peko and Ducati just have been the better rider team combo than Fabio and Yamaha. But um, Fabio knows he can't afford mistakes and Peko knows he can afford mistakes because he has the better bike. And I believe that's the difference. If you always have to operate on this thin margin, I guess it's it builds up on you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, um, when you have excuse me, a team of the magnitude and the ability of Ducati, you can always, I'm not saying always, but you can afford to have less pressure on your shoulders because you will you know you'll be able to make it up and you've also got other riders out there who can pick up the points that you lose. The problem with for Fabio is that basically until Franco Morbidelli's fully firing again or until any other kind of Yamaha starts helping him out, his mistakes are felt more sharply than Paco's are because any mistakes that Fabio makes, it's good night Irene for him. But I'm hoping and I'm praying to the Lord Valentino Rossi and MotoGP heaven that next year the bike is better and he has more power. Because if you're going to make Fabio fight the entire campaign for Yamaha by himself, at least give him a bike as good as the Ducati to compete. Otherwise, we may as well all go home. There's no point. And you uh, spoke about uh, Frankie, which uh, is a funny topic in itself. Because uh, Frankie had a rather exciting race. He uh, had his best qualifying ever. Or not his best qualifying ever, his best qualifying this season. And I would argue it's his best qualifying on the factory Yamaha as well. But I don't remember last season well enough. But yeah, he had his best qualifying. Then he had to double long that because he was cruising on the racing line. And then he got, in my opinion, a ridiculous penalty where he overtook uh, Elias Bagaro into um, the second last corner, where uh, he they touched, but Elias didn't crash, and uh, Frankie took the position and won the battle between them. And I don't understand how you could penalize this, because we have many maneuvers where riders touch, and many maneuvers, especially in the last lap, where you could argue, okay, this was a little bit hard, but it still was fair, you know? LH didn't crash, and yeah, 
it is what it is, you know. But uh, the race direction uh, fucked up once again. Again. And yeah, and I don't understand what they're trying to achieve. Do you want really to prevent people from overtaking this hard? And what's what's funny about it, I guarantee you 100%, if the same situation happened between Peko and Inea Bastianini, there wouldn't be a penalty. No way. No way would that happen. You're absolutely right. Look, I mean, I'm used to race direction just messing up my weekend now, so I kind of just expect it. But come on, people, at least get some consistency in what you want from these riders. You know, we want to see, not to spoil what we're going to talk about in Moto2, but we want Augusto Fernandez and Jake Dixon. That's basically what I want to see every weekend. And you're taking that away from us. You know, be clear on what you want. Do you want physical riding or do you not? It's kind of hard not to want physical riding anyway, because they're there. They're going to do it anyway. Ah, race direction. I'm just used to them fucking up my life at this point, Leo. Um, Until they get someone who isn't blind in to run race direction, they're just going to keep messing up, unfortunately. And we're kind of just going to have to accept it. Yeah, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit sad, but... I think it's just funny because Frankie easily could have been top five with his um without his penalties. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's like it adds up to like nine seconds of penalty time over the whole race because you could argue that a three uh second penalty is the same as a long lap, and he had uh basically three three second penalties. And which is interesting to me because um when we uh just look back at when we look back at australia where alex marquez absolutely dive bombs into jack miller and seriously risks his health he gets one long lap and the same happened to frankie with alicia spagro where nothing happened come on i mean the the exact same incident basically and you punish one the less severe one and don't punish the other. Uh, I I gotta be honest, Leo. I think race direction are smoking crack every weekend. I think this is the only solution. I think that race direction are obviously away with the fairies when they're watching the races because we're not in race direction. Shocking as that might be to reveal to people, we are not at the tracks every weekend, and we can see this. So why can't they? a very good question i don't know Nobody i mean it's it's, it's obvious it's obvious we can see it i i'm in ireland and i can see it about two thousand kilometers away probably more but you get where i'm coming from i'm watching my tv thousands of kilometers away and i can see the discrepancies between these yet race direction who are at the race can't see it I, I, is it error 404 or something? What's going on with these people? Yeah, especially when there's no impact at all. I mean, there was Frankie, no impact. Frankie takes the position, cool. Alessia Spiral loses the position, okay, cool. But it's not like a point, uh, not like the point is going to decide the title because Alessia's out of it anyway. So I don't understand what's going on. Ah. Uh. And it really, really annoys me that we get so little TV coverage from uh, the midfield because when you remember Qatar, 
Qatar was basically, it wasn't a boring race, but it wasn't the most exciting race. And we had this amazing battles uh, from the rookies, but there were no uh, no coverage at all on the broadcast. And it's it has basically been the same forever. They don't show the back of the grid, except it's like Mark Marcus in Austin. And we have um, Jack Miller, who did basically the same which Mark Marcus did in Austin, and nobody gave a fuck about it. He wasn't even mentioned. There were no... Uh, screen times of his overtakes. I mean, if you don't want to miss what's happen what's happening at the front, I understand it. My solution would be to um to have the broadcast uh, thirty seconds or fifteen seconds or whatever behind real time, so you can adjust uh, to whatever happens. And uh, when you know, okay, in the next thirty seconds there isn't happening anything at the front, but uh, for example, Jack Miller overtakes two dudes showed Jack Miller on the uh, TV, you know? And I don't understand why they're not doing this. First of all, it's uh, a little bit sad for the fans because races could be so much more interesting if we got to see those battles. I mean, we are talking about boring races, but it's only boring at the front and the rest of the grid, nobody knows because nobody's seeing it. And uh, second of all, all the sponsors who are, who are sponsoring, for example, a Red Bull KTM, who are sponsoring uh, an RNF Yamaha, who are sponsoring uh, the Repsol Honda, if not Mark Marcus is sitting on it. You know, all these sponsors, they are getting no TV time because the broadcast is this shitty. And I don't understand it. First of all, from a fan perspective, it's bad. But second of all, from a sponsor perspective, it's also bad. Why would I want to sponsor, let's say I'm a company, I have a couple million dollars uh, left and uh, whatever. Tech 3 uh, comes up to me and says, hey, do you want to sponsor us? We have this, uh, this, this. And I say, yeah, cool. Uh, what's um, what's my benefit? Yeah, you're on our MotoGP back. Okay, cool. How many TV uh, seconds do we get? Yeah, we get a couple of seconds during free practice. I'm like, yeah, fuck you. You're not getting my money. Yeah, it's accurate. It is accurate. This is the state of play, and I really, really don't like it. And it's even worse during these races where one rider is dominating the whole race, and all I have to see is this one rider dominating lap after lap after lap. Show us something different. I don't just want to see Paco Banyaya dominating the entire grid one weekend i don't i mean as much as i love fabio there's races where fabio dominates and i want to see something different some of the best action is in the middle of the pack and towards the lower end of the pack like you said jack miller from 22nd to sixth on the grid and you didn't think during the 45 odd minutes of racing that might be worth us watching someone who's obviously marauding from 22nd up the grid you didn't think that might be worth watching for five, ten seconds of a 45-minute race? Leo, I just, I don't know what more to say. I really, really don't. You know, we have race direction screwing everybody's lives up on track. And we have the media and broadcast team screwing things up off the track. I, I don't get it. You know, not everybody wants to see the front three or four riders for every minute of every race. Show us, you know, Remy's progression throughout the race. Show us Raul Fernandez. Show us some of the other riders that are in this grid. I just, I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, the exposure of the teams further down the grid is basically zero. And last year, when you remember Misano, there was the situation where Peko crashed in the lead and the cameras weren't on him because they were somewhere else. And I understand that they're trying to uh, avoid those situations where they miss a very, very important part of the race, which is usually happened at the front, um, when they miss those. But the problem would be solved if you just have your normal broadcast delayed by 20 or 30 seconds nobody would miss anything because uh, even all the journalists were tweeting live until they are tweeting and sending the tweet it's already happened you know yeah and um when you when you then can show overtakes when you then can basically pick and choose all the important things because when you when you have like your normal broadcast setting even show replays from the overtakes uh, further down the grid. I don't need necessarily need to see it live. It would be cooler, yes, but show some replays. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, there's got to be variety or there's no real point watching it. Like you said, you make a really good point. Like with Paco's crash at Mizano last year, I get that you want to capture those kind of things, but there's no benefit for anybody else in being part of the broadcast if they're not being shown. Like if it's a football match and Paris Saint-Germain are playing, we don't just focus on Lionel Messi or Kylian Mbappe. If it's Man City playing, we don't just watch Erling Haaland throughout all 90 minutes. We watch the whole game and we watch everything as it unfolds. There's got to be variety or there's no point. And like you said, even with sponsors, you know, what are they getting? Free practice, Q2, Q1. There's really no point unless you're going to make it fair. It's something that I think really has to change. Yeah, of course. But uh, then we are in the same situation that we are with basically anything in this sport that Donna is incapable of uh, of doing things better because there are enough people who are raising those issues. They're raising, uh, I mean, there have been there has been an article on the race. I retweeted it on Twitter uh, where Cal Crutchlow pointed out that there was a plenty of action further down the field and they weren't getting no uh, TV time at all. And you just have to basically read it, find a solution, and then do it. It's not that difficult to show a broadcast, you know? And you are able to do it if it's Mark Marcus who's further down the field. Yeah, and that's the only time it happens is when a big name is somehow further down the grid. We, there just has to be a mix-up. There does. There has to be something different to watch every weekend. And I got to be honest, I think one solution for me personally could be on the board of Dorna, whenever they meet every preseason to discuss these races and that kind of stuff, I would love to have a fan representative on the board of Dorna to bring them these solutions. Because until they realize where they're going wrong, they're going to keep doing this. And it might not be actively nosediving the sport, but it is hurting it. And I, you know, Leo, you mentioned that you've been to Valencia last season. I'm sure you didn't just want to see the front of the race for all 45 minutes. 
we want to see the middle of the pack, that racing as well. And even towards the back, there's really good racing in that part of the race as well. I just, I wish Dorna would change it. I really, really do. Um, I think the solutions are out there. You've proposed a number of them. I just proposed one there now. Just, just do something different. Yeah, Valencia was pretty simple. In Model 3, I watched Pedro the entire time. In Model 2, I watched <laughs> Remy the entire time. And in Model GP, I watched Valentino Rossi the entire time. <laughs> well, there's my argument gone. <laughs> yeah, but they were fighting in the mid-pack. So I, at least uh, Remy and uh, Vale, because uh, Pedro was fighting at the top uh, before Dennis Fodio took him out. And uh, yeah. He got taken out once again from Chandra, which is unfortunate. But um, yeah, at least he could uh, he could pick up the bike and uh, get a few laps in in uh, Zipang, because what it comes down to this season is experience, and he's gaining plenty of them. I I like the rain uh, qualifying in Motigi. I like the rain race in 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 in, in Thailand. And uh, those are things who build up experience, which brings you at the end of the day to, towards a championship. And um, when when we talk about the Model Two Championship, um, it's it's mind blowing to me how fucking stupid Ayogura was. I mean, it's easy to judge from the outside, but. You could make a very strong argument that this maneuver is even stupid when you're not competing for the championship. Because it wasn't a last corner maneuver. It's turn 10. You have plenty of overtaking opportunities um, further down the track. And you, you come from so far behind that you have to break so deep and turn 10 is an absolute motherfucker of a corner because it doesn't open you have to basically turn the bike in and then you have to get along with the um with the hairpin and then can exit out you know it's not like a flowing corner when you go a little bit wide you have to break very deep into the corner you know yeah and uh yeah from a championship contender who has like four fingers on the trophy. This is beyond stupid. The only thing I can put this down to, and it's probably not even much of a defense in itself, but the only thing I can defend Iagora with with this is just a complete another example of losing his head and losing his composure. That's it. Because this is one of the stupidest maneuvers I've ever seen in my life. One of the least intelligent management of a race that I have ever seen. Turn 10, like you said, is a motherfucker of a corner. It is one of the tightest hairpins in the calendar. You have to stop. You've basically got to stop the bike completely and then get it turned. Why would you think you could approach a hairpin so come in so hot to a hairpin, get it stopped that deep and then come out again. He was always going to overshoot it. He was always going to overshoot it. He overshot it and he might just have thrown his chance at the title away as well. And 
it hurts because I'd love to see Ayagora win the title. I think he's had such a great season that he deserves it. But Leo, he might just have fucked it up entirely. He really, really might just have. And it's his own fault. It is his own fault. He overshot it. He overcooked it. And he paid the price for it. But God, it was tough to watch because that might that might just be Augusto Fernandez with one hand on the title now instead of Ayagora. Oh boy, it was sore to watch. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you compare the crash from Augusto Fernandez last uh, week in in Australia, it's more of a case where he was on the limit because everybody's on the limit, and it just didn't work out for him. But yeah. there, you couldn't fault him for that. Maybe you could have said, "Okay, why, uh, why don't you back out of it?" But it's easy to judge from the outside, man. There is no, there's no real point of criticism for Augusto Fernandez crash in, uh, in Australia, and the same with uh, Raul Fernandez last year in Misano or Remy in uh, Austin. You know, those are things that happen when you're riding on the limit, and everybody's riding on the limit there. But Ayogura, there are two things that absolutely. I don't understand. First is why in the first place do you go for this maneuver when he has to know that Fernandez is somewhere in sixth or whatever. And uh, then you absolutely know that it's not your championship competitor in front of you. So you don't have to overtake them. It's, uh, it's always a very risky maneuver. And um, the second part is when you are breaking inside uh, such a tight hairpin, uh, he lost the bike pretty late. So there has been a lot of distance, which he covered, where it's like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. And then there wasn't this, okay, which is the benefit of a hairpin. You can just lift the bike up, go a little bit deeper into the corner, let the other one pass again, and then you get along with the race. Everything's fine. But how do you commit in this point in the championship, in this point of the track, where you absolutely know that it's a really, really difficult task to hold the bike on uh, two wheels. Man, if if Ayogura was overtaking Augusto Fernandez with this, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, complain because it's yeah, it's happened. Yeah, but I would get it. He, he was trying to win a battle and end up losing the war, basically. In a battle which wasn't necessarily one he has to win. And it's, yeah, with this, basically, he threw the championship away. And in my opinion, now absolutely deserved because it's so plain stupid. I honestly could not have said that any better, Leo. That's a credit to you. That was perfectly said. He not only did he lose the battle, but he unnecessarily, stupidly lost the battle and has now probably thrown the war away as well. It wasn't even a title challenger he was trying to overtake. Just sit behind him for turn 10 and then overtake him if you really have to. If, if it was Augusto Fernandez that have gotten it, I would have understood that because that would be fair enough. But Augusto Fernandez was behind him. He was behind him. And he threw it away over nothing. Oh man! I and it's don't... it's oh. not like he was directly behind him. He was like 
three, four places behind he him. He was like three or four places behind him. And I'm not even a part of Honda Team Asia. And even I'm sick in watching it because it was so unnecessary. He was a, he was about four or five seconds behind you. And you throw it away. Over, oh, oh, God, all I feel is... I live in Spain without the ass, Leo. I really do watching this. That's that's the only way I can put it. And I'm not even a member of Iagora's team. How must they feel? They have got it. They mu- their hearts must have been ripped out of their chest watching that. They really must have. Yeah, and there's this narrative in motorsport, which is they are all born winners. They have to try it. And the same with Jorge Martin in Australia. And not in Australia, in Austria, I'm sorry. And uh, Mark Marcus was famous for it, that he always tried for it. But in my opinion, again, from the outside, it's easy to judge. It's just stupid. Take home a second place. Take home a third place. Or like Ayagura did in Australia, take home like an 11th place. It's more important to pick up points than to crash. And I don't understand it, how you how you can risk all of your hard work from the whole season where you always have been so calm and collected. I can't remember that he had any other DNF except uh, the Portimao one, which was just unlucky. But uh, yeah, it's it's so damn stupid and I don't understand it. I absolutely don't understand it. It's absolutely his fault, of course, but it's so stupid. It was just a complete and utter loss of his mind. That's what it was. It was like the ultimate brain fart, but it's the brain fart that has thrown a championship away now. And, oh, God, just, I don't even know. And I almost guarantee you he won't win the championship next year. Probably. Probably that is the case. Who was the last runner-up? of a championship who won the following year. I mean, Peko would be uh, an obvious choice if he does win the championship. But behind this, I can't remember anything which happened in recent history, especially not in MotoGP, because the last MotoGP titles have always uh, been Mark Marcus, and then um, Fabio wasn't the runner-up, Jean-Mir wasn't the runner-up. Um, Jorge Lorenzo wasn't a runner-up in 2014. MotoGP, 100% not. I Shit, guess that's Mark, actually a good question. <laughs> Mark Marcus in 2011 won the World Championship. No, in, in 2011, Stefan Bradl won the World Championship. In 2012, Mark Marcus won. Paul Espargaro was a runner-up, I believe, in 2012 and won in 2013. But then again, Tito Rabat, who won in 2014, was the runner-up in 2013. As far as I'm concerned, that should have been Scott Redding. Yeah. Then um, in 2015, Joan Zarco won. I think Mika Kalio was a runner-up in 2014. Then 2015, 2016 was Joan Zarco. 2017, who won the Moto2 title in 2017. Uh, was it Alex Marquez? No, Alex Marquez was no. 2019. Peko Bagnaia was 2018. Juan May, no, Maverick Vinales, no. maybe? No, 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 no. No, Maverick was in the premier class. Frankie, course. Frankie. Frankie, that's who it was. Frankie wasn't the runner up, as far as I'm concerned. 
I don't remember him ever being a runner-up. Yeah, then Peko, Alex Marcus. Yeah, I I don't think oh. it happens frequently. That's why I don't Very like rarely. the. Yeah, that's why I don't like those predictions when you're like, okay, he was a runner-up, he will win the championship. This usually doesn't happen. Same with Dennis Foggia. Usually it doesn't happen because I feel like it's such a such a knockout punch that you suffer when you just lose out on winning the championship that it's so difficult to recover from mentally. And... Um, that's because you don't see Super Bowl losers winning the uh, next year. You usually don't see like with the NBA, it's a little bit different because the NBA is weird. But yeah. usually in high level sports, you don't see it. That's all I'm trying to say. And um, second of all, Alonso Lopez, he, this wow. would be rather interesting uh, to know if he, where he would be in the championship because. Let's let's uh, calculate this through Alonso Lopez. He's for sure now top rookie, and oh he no missed, question, he missed like the first six races, which was it, it was Qatar, it was um, Indonesia, it was America, it was Argentina, it was uh, Portimao, and Jerez, and in the more he raced, so six races he missed, and uh, let's look up the Moto Two Championship. Because I for sure think that he would be like uh, third in the championship at least. I don't know if he would be competing with uh, Augusto and with uh, Ayogura. But um, yeah. How many races do we have now? Uh, this season is 20 races, right? Um, I think so, yeah. So we have now 18.5 races in Moto2 because of the Thailand GP. Which means Alonso Lopez has 155.5. 155.5 divided by 18.5. Yes, it's 18.5 races. No, it's not 18.5. It's, uh, it's 12.5. I'm stupid because he missed six races. That's the whole point why we're doing it. It's 12.5, and then you multiply it by 18.5, get 230 points, which would be 12 points behind Ayogura. Damn. And he still would have a mathematical shot at the title. Alonso Lopez is the real deal. Oh, yeah, he is. He yes, is he so absolutely is. fucking good. And I still believe that the speed up isn't necessarily as good as the Kallax. Yeah. But that's, he I think it's making fair. it. He's making it good. Like, Fermin Aldeguer was beating Alonso Lopez last year in the European Championship, but they were head and shoulders above everybody else. And now they came into the World Championship. Fermin is struggling a little bit. Like he's a good rookie, don't get me wrong, but he's not as good as Alonso Lopez. 
But on the other hand, Alonso Lopez uh, knew all the tracks because he has been in Moto3 before and Fermin uh, didn't. So, yeah. And uh, Alonso is so incredibly fast from the get-go and developed a consistency in a race pace. Usually he was good at the beginning, but then dropped off. Now he doesn't drop off anymore. And he developed a consistency where you don't see him crash. He crashed in Argentina, not in Argentina. That was a uh, famine. He crashed in Aragon, which wasn't necessarily his fault. It was an unfortunate situation. He crashed in Le Mans. I can remember where uh, Albert Arenas took him out. But then I don't necessarily remember a crash from Alonso. Maybe I'm missing something, but... Uh, he might not have he, crashed since. Could be. Could be very possible. And he's so incredibly fast right now. This is bonkers. He's top rookie. And Pedro Acosta won two GPs. He has been on the podium multiple times. Um, and he has like six races more. And and uh, and Alonso Lopez is now in the championship uh, ahead of him, which is absolutely crazy when you consider the circumstances. And then on the flip side of the coin would be I... Uh, I would argue that Alonso Lopez is riding with a huge chip on his shoulder because he wasn't picked and which is to me still very, very hard to understand why Speedup didn't promote him as well. I guess the only explanation has been that it has to do something with money. Everything else doesn't make sense to me. So um, he didn't get his seat absolutely undeservingly. And then he deservingly got to see it in Le Mans and I felt like this made something with him where, where he's like, now I'm going to show you. And he showed us. He is absolutely fucking good. And tough to argue if he would have been as good as he's right now uh, if he didn't have this chip on his shoulder, but there's a lot of if, if buts and maybes, you know? The fact of the matter is Alonso Lopez is a motherfucker and Alonso Lopez will compete for the title next season. Oh, there's no question about this at all, Leo. There is no question. This is a kid who is not only blindingly talented, but who is motivated beyond belief. And it's that motivation and that pissed off anger at having his seat taken away from him that is driving him towards the top of this grid. It really, really is. And if Alonso Lopez can keep this motivation next year, because there's no doubt he will fight for the title next year if he can keep this going with a full preseason behind him and a full season ahead of him he could well be a title favorite and it would not shock me if he was at all the kid is fast one second um because we previously before we started recording also talked about manu gonzalez and uh, manu has said that he has some health issues it seems to be something with his collarbone. And he is also somebody who, who I would uh, watch for next season because A, he has huge talent. B, you're seeing him getting onto grips with a Moto2 machine, especially like in Malaysia. He was so incredibly good. And he did like, he was fifth, if I remember correctly. And he did I think it with, he was. A, uh, with a compromised body i don't know i guess collarbone has to be broken uh 
um yeah it's a tough task to uh for everybody to do like a push-up with a broken collarbone but to ride a race in malaysia which is so fucking hot and so humid there that uh it drains you physically and also the pain i I'm very, very impressed by Manu. He's doing a great job. He also did a great job in Australia. And he's somebody I would uh, watch for next season as well. Maybe title, maybe top five in the championship. Maybe it's like a three-year learning process for him. I don't know. But um, he's on the verge of getting into the top three under the the podium uh, consistently if he gets his health right and... He has all the skills in the world, you know, and he has a great team behind him. The Yamaha team should be a great team. I mean, it's Valentino Rossi and Yamaha together and Yamaha uh, don't have to develop the bike themselves. So that's uh, good news for any rider. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. It's true. Uh, yeah, and also Celestino Vietti. I mean, let's pretend Celestino Vietti finishes the races uh, in the position where he's crashing then he would be fighting for the championship. And I can see him fixing this over the winter and coming into the season with new motivation. Because if Celestino Chietti stays on the bike, he's an absolute motherfucker. How many times have you had to produce the disappointed Valentino me now? How many races has it been? I can count. (laughs) I mean, it's got to be nearly 10. I did it in uh, all the races he crashed, but I also did it like in free practice and qualifying because it's uh, it was so funny. But uh, yeah, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, no, eleven now. Eleven. Fuck. Eleven races. Oh my god. Yeah. But again, sometimes it's free practice. Like in Misano, he crashed twice. So, yeah. Okay, so maybe nine. It's it's a lot. It's too much. It's too many. That's that's the basic point that I'm making. Yeah, Celestino just... This really was his title to win, I think. I think I might have, at the beginning of the season, predicted Celestino Vietti to win the title. And it's it's a bit like Ayagora... Uh, in Malaysia, it's him that's thrown it away. He had the potential to win this title and run away with this title. And unfortunately, ever since the first crash, he's just not been at it at all. But I hope he regroups and he's better next year because he's more than worthy of it, I would definitely yeah. say he is. Yeah. If he doesn't crash, he can win the title. Which brings us to the next one, Pedro Acosta. If oh. Pedro uh, sorts out his crashing especially at the beginning of the season, which is like a learning process. He's a rookie. There's nothing to gain, only something to lose. Um, and he is he is so gifted as a rider. It's out of, out of this world. And if he gets it together, and I believe he will, it's just a normal rookie season. Mistakes happen. You learn, especially the Moto2 bikes are... Um, they need a lot of maturity to ride. And he is very, 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 very good. And I can see him uh, competing for the title next season. So it will be very interesting, which brings us back to the main point why we start talking about it. Um, 
Ayogura, in my opinion, won't win the title next season. So this is his one and only chance. Not his chance, but it's like a realistic. Uh, it it's not it's not going to be easier next year. Let's phrase it this way, because you never know what's going to happen. Also, Tony Abolino, if he uh, if he is next season as good as he's been on the overseas races. I mean, it's there. It is yeah. absolutely there. And when it comes to, um, especially when it comes to Ayagora, you know, it's him that's thrown it away. Unfortunately, it just is. You know, that one mistake is so unforgivable that that's what's thrown the title away. And that's the nature of the beast as well. If you mess up that badly, you get punished for it. That's just the way it is. Um, Just on Pedro briefly, because <clears> I know you touched on him briefly, I think he's had a brilliant rookie season. He really has. It's pretty much what I expected from Pedro. And there's even been times where he's impressed me more than I thought he would. Um, I think next year he is really going to be, I think he'll be a genuine title challenger. He's had a year to get used to the bike, get used to the sort of speedier nature of the class. And I think he really will be one to watch. I really do. But I also agree with you. This was Ayagora's chance. This was his season to win it. And now that's gone. Yeah. Yeah, with the Moto2, it's not only speed. It's also uh, that you have to learn how to set up a bike properly with all the electronics. You have to learn how to manage tires. And it's all a little bit more condensed in uh, Moto2 because everybody has the same bike and everybody is so fucking good. You don't have the... Um, the wild chaos nature of a Moto3 race where basically anything can happen. So it's it's really a step up and it wouldn't surprise me necessarily if it's a three-year process for Pedro because he is still only 18 years old. I mean, next season he will be 19 and let's pretend he wins the title and he goes to MotoGP with a, as, a, as a 19-year-old who turns 20. Or if he stays in a Moto2, if he doesn't win the title, it it's not like he's he has to move up, especially if he's uh, in a contract with KTM, you know? Yeah, definitely not. He can stay there pretty much as long as he needs to, to physic. Pedro's uh, maturity, well, I don't think it'll be in terms of riding ability. I think his maturity will be more physical maturity and development because you got to remember, he's still only an 18-year-old kid. And he needs time to sort of physically mold with the bike and to develop in line with the class. So if he does really good next year, give him two or three years if he needs to in the class. Give him the time that he needs and he will produce the results. Yeah. And also you don't know what Aki Ayo will do with Albert Arenas. Maybe he pulled the rabbit out of his head. And Albert Arenas uh, will be a good uh, writer next year. Who knows? Yeah. Who's to say? Who is to say? I think it would be a hell of a team if that <clears> did happen. You know, Albert Arenas has been very impressive this season, for sure. I think that would be really good. Yeah, and what is funny, when you um, when you compare the Moto2 season from this year to uh, last year, it's mind-blowing how fucking good Remy and Raul were. Remy had over 300 points after 17 races, and now Augusto has 250 after one and a half race more. How? It's so incredible how fucking good they were. 
both Remy and Raul. If Raul would have stayed in Moto 2, he would have won the championship in Germany. Yeah, he would have. Yeah, he absolutely would have. He would have played balls with uh, all the all the riders. Eh? <laughs> it's true. It is yeah. true. He would have. It's it's not even fair. I mean, you would have. Uh, you need to uh, insert like a balance of performance where you put him on the 600cc Honda and everybody else gets to ride the Triumph. But man, he... It's a little bit sad as well because I feel like Raul deserved to win a championship. It wasn't necessarily his season to be last year because, again, he had too many crashes. It wasn't Aki who put some stones in his way. Raul crashed three times out of podium contention. And those three races, they herded him. And uh, Remy was just better over the season because he was more consistent and he was able to beat Raul when he had to. And Remy was smarter about it. And uh, I feel a little bit bad for Raul because his performance last year deserved the championship. It was just the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess. And yeah, but Leo, Raul did win a championship. He's the moral champion. And at the end of the day, yeah, that's what counts. Yeah, and he's also the moral rookie of the year. There we go. Problem yeah. solved. Yeah, but if he didn't uh, went to MotoGP, uh, I guess it would, would have been realistically good night, Irene, in, uh, in Aragon. Oh, yeah. Like, on a serious note, you know, take, aside from taking the piss out of Raul for a minute, um, if he'd have been in the Moto2 class this year, he would have wiped the floor with everybody because I think there's a real argument that last year were the two best individual years that we've seen from anybody in the history of Grand Prix motorcycle racing. Remy and Raul were so far ahead of everybody else that they were basically lapping them in terms of the championship. That's how good they both were. And if Raul was in the championship this season, I think maybe Alonso Lopez would have come close, possibly, but they would have just broke everybody else. That's how good Raul Fernandez is. Yeah, and you have to consider that if Raul Fernandez stayed in Moto2, then, uh, then Augusto Fernandez wouldn't have got the... Aki seat, which is also like extra 50 points in the championship if you ride for Aki Ayo's team, you know? <laughs> and yeah, it, it would have been a good night, Irene. It, oh, yeah. it wouldn't be entertaining. It would just be Raul winning 10 races in a row, then maybe uh, scoring second or third, and then winning uh, another 10 races or nine races. Imagine a team of Raul Fernandez and Pedro Acosta yeah, but I also think that if uh, Raul Fernandez would be in Moto2 right now, that Pedro wouldn't be able to uh, beat him like he was able to beat uh, Augusto Fernandez. I think that's a fair point, yeah. That's a good point. I yeah. agree with that. Raul was fucking good. And then, which brings us to a little bit uh, back to MotoGP, because uh, DGR, he had a rather interesting uh, Instagram post. Let me read it to you real quickly. Um, where he said he isn't necessarily feeling uh, good on the bike, or not good on the bike, he isn't feeling good uh, in general. 
Wait a minute. Fabio, where is it? Fabio DJ. There it is. He said, it's in Italian, so let me translate it. 19th uh, race of the season, the weekend trend is still the same. Unfortunately, we don't get better. We don't solve problems. Uh, we can't be faster. The fact is that this season I've had less and less fun riding my motorcycle, but I'm not talking about the motorcycle it itself. Ducati MotoGP is, an, is the most extraordinary and incredible ride I've ever ridden, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. I had less fun, and the results didn't come. Uh, through it all, uh, what have we learned? I learned that the level in MotoGP is very high, and you don't leave anything to charm. Then uh, And then I think that the game is just working hard, working really, really hard, planning, studying, analyzing, believing, yada, 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 is he obsessed? And then basically he's questioning if he's obsessed. And um, which is a little bit understandable from a perspective where he's riding the best bike on the grid. And Inea Bastianini has the same bike and he's competing for the championship until Malaysia. So I guess it's rather frustrating for him, especially when you see Marco Bezzecchi with all the success and everybody's like the Ducati is such a great bike, but you are the only one who isn't getting results. So yeah, it's difficult, I can imagine. But then, which brings us back to the uh, Moto2, when you when you remember DJI and Moto3 had one good race, which was in Jerez. And I believe... He isn't good enough for MotoGP, in my opinion. Because when you see all these riders building all these great uh, things on a bike, and then you like these small little details, they matter. They matter many. Um, they matter much more than, for example, in Moto2. They matter much, much more than in Moto3, you know? And I feel like he's lacking this little extra step which Peko has, with which Inea has. And those are both world champions. And Tijia, the last time he competed for a world championship was like in Moto3, and he was out of it pretty quickly. And yeah, so I don't necessarily know what to make from this post because I feel like he's just frustrated. It's not like he won't be there in um, in 2023 because to me, it would just be plain stupid from him. I mean, if he has two seasons like this and you're really unhappy, okay, cool. Go to whatever makes you happy. There's no point of being unhappy. And I mean, mental health is still health, you know, if he isn't feeling good and uh, isn't happy doing it then okay cool but just from a tough rookie season it would be a little bit uh, premature even though I mean he had some success he had a good race in Mugello he had the pole position in the uh, in the tricky con conditions ask Remy and Raul how their life is you know and uh, I would love to in hindsight I would have loved to uh, give Remy the um, the Ducati of Digia, I think this would have been easy rookie of the year for him. He would have been as yeah. good as Bezicki. Yeah, I um, I think Fabio Tijan and Tony is a very good point to bring up. Obviously, because of that Instagram post that you referred to, aside from a couple of other things, 
I think the problem that Digi is ex- is experiencing now is that the standard that's been set by Ducati this season by all seven other Ducatis is so high that you have to match that or you're going to be left behind. I think this is the problem. And I think Fabio Di Antonio is looking at, you know, the mind-blowing success that Enea Bastianini to my right um, has experienced this season. And he's thinking, why isn't that me that's having that success? And I think he's starting to doubt himself because he's seeing all these other Ducatis doing well and he isn't. And I don't know if maybe he was pushed up too soon. I don't know. Maybe that is the case. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But I think maybe a Ducati was possibly a mistake for Digi uh, in hindsight. Maybe it was too much too soon. Um, I do think someone like Remy would really suit that Ducati uh, just because of his riding style and that ability to transition from the power to the lean and all that kind of stuff. But look, at the end of the day, like you said, mental health is still health. And I really hope Fabio to Gian Antonio is okay. He just takes some time to process it because, look, he'll be able to go again next season. He'll have another chance at it. And hopefully it goes better than this time. Yeah. I mean, it's it's tough, I guess. But some things uh, you have to tough out. And I feel like it's more of a difficult situation for him to... Uh, where the success isn't coming, even though he's working hard, because he's incredibly talented. Um, he has done great things in the Moto3 class. I remember this really well. He did good in Moto G- in Moto2, and he had some good moments in MotoGP too. He he can get there. It's not just it's not handed to you on a silver pl- uh, plate, I guess. So I hope he fixes it because it would it would be sad. It's a kind of cool story for him. Because he has been with the Grazini family forever, and now um, you you would like to see those uh, things work out. But um, yeah, in hindsight, I mean, I've been saying it for a while now that Remy deserves a Ducati. Basically, it's not that Remy deserves a Ducati; it's more like nobody deserves a KTM. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I mean, Remy deserves a Suzuki. Remy deserves a Aprilia. Uh, Remy, even the Yamaha is a better bike than a KTM because at least <laughs> that... someone can ride it. Yeah, that's true. It is true. Yeah, same with their <laughs> Remy and a Yamaha. Yeah, maybe, maybe if Yamaha has a customer team in 2024, which they are uh, bringing together maybe if he wants to and maybe if he isn't uh, so happy in uh, Superbike that he doesn't want to leave at all maybe he uh, comes back to MotoGP but it wouldn't surprise me if he says fuck all of you I don't want to have a 23 race calendar with sprint races and all of this shit where I'm away from home for 10 weeks and uh, where I can live in uh, World Superbike have better racing on a better bike, not necessarily in a performance way, a better bike, but a more fun bike to ride because the KTM is just a piece of shit. And um, yeah, to have an easier life, like for the same money. Who wouldn't do it? Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he says, fuck all of you, I'm staying here. And it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me if Toprock says the same. It wouldn't surprise me if anybody from... Uh, 
World Superbike uh, says, I don't even want to go to MotoGP because it's it's like it's a little bit like Formula One. MotoGP is getting a little bit into this direction of Formula One where you only have to have a good car, respectively a good bike underneath you. You can't overtake. There's team orders. The only thing missing is pit stops, you know? And um, Oh, God, don't say where, that. Yeah, where Superbikes is more of a more of a pure racing class i feel like you know and regarding pit stops i have a great idea for a season finale why don't we make a moto gp race which is twice the uh, race distance and you have a pit stop after uh after half the race it would be fun right give double points for double distance are, are you just cool. saying this to get fabio to win <laughs> no no in general it would be cool it would be really cool to have maybe some strategies uh, in going in there. Um, I I like where you're coming from on that, but I think the problem is that riding a MotoGP bike is so much more fatiguing than driving an F1 car that the riders probably just wouldn't last the distance. But it, what if we have teams? Yeah, what if we have like an, al- an alternate an alternate rider? That would be I'd be up for that. That would be pretty yeah. good. Yeah, like uh, Ducati is riding with uh, Jack Miller and uh, Peko, Rezini is with Inea and Digia, and Yamaha is with Frankie and uh, Frankie and Fabio. So yeah, would would be cool. Would be fun. Yeah. Maybe maybe make this race to decide to construct this championship. I'm not against that. I like that a lot, actually. Fabio, uh, sorry, Franco Morbidelli rides the first half of the race. Fabio hops on for the second half. I'd watch that. That would actually be pretty cool. Like an FIM endurance race. Especially when you have, like, let's pretend like uh, you have a race where Inea Bastianini is riding the first stint. And uh, Jack Miller is riding the uh, first in for the factory team. And then uh, Inia Bastinini is like five seconds ahead. But then you switch it with Peko coming in and uh, Digia coming in. And you're like, oh, fuck, he's going to overtake them. Man. You know, this would be fun. And Valentino Rossi drives the safety car. Yeah, in his uh, new BMW. Did you see the uh, new uh, GT3 uh, car? I did see it, yes. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah, the M4 is a fucking monster. It's so oh. huge. It's like five meters long. I feel like two and a half meters wide. It's huge. And the Audi is respectively a small car in comparison. It's yeah. huge. The BMW is it's even bigger than the old M6. It's so fucking huge. I just hope somebody doesn't clip that last bit out of context. <laughs> It's so fucking huge, just like five meters. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, God. Any, anyway, yes, you are right in all seriousness about that point. I did love the old Ari at LMS, though, but then I'm a sucker for the Ari, so I'm always going to like it. Yeah, um, I like the I like the new Ari. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ari for and, life. Yeah. And I would uh, love to talk about Moto3 as well, but unfortunately, I have to confess, I fell asleep. <laughs> I um, fell asleep a couple of uh, laps into it. 
And um, then Matt Bird uh, woke me up when uh, Isa Guevara was uh, running out of track on the green and he was screaming. Then I was back uh, awake and watched like the last uh, three races, as uh, uh, three laps, I'm sorry. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy for John McPhee. Great for him because he has have he doesn't have a ride for next season. So hopefully he will get one. Maybe BSB. I think Moto 2 is a little bit of a long shot because even though he wins occasionally, he's not a consistent front runner. But I feel like he would be uh he would be better off like in British Superbike. I guess that would suit him pretty well. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was a good race overall. Happy for John McPhee as well. Very, very good win, especially where he started on the grid to go up and win the race was absolutely fantastic. But the, the thing is, you're right about Moto2, and the problem even more with Moto2 is that Rory Skinner is joining next year with the American racing team. So the Scottish kind of thing doesn't even work anymore because there's a new Scott going into the class. I think British Superbike could be a good shout. I think that would allow John to really get his mojo back, get his groove back, get his winning form back, and then maybe try and get back into Moto2 that way. It's sort of like Jake Dixon did, uh, but slightly more skew if. Um, but overall, really happy for John. Nice to see him finally win, and it was very, very deserved. Yeah, and I have a question, which is a little bit strange for me. Because, uh, for example, when I'm watching the UFC, the fighters are uh, fighting uh, under the English flag, under the Scottish flag, and in motorcycle racing or also in Formula One, uh, the drivers, respectively the riders, are um, are riding uh, for the Union Jack. When mm -hmm. the fuck do you get to pick Scotland and when the fuck do you get to pick uh, Great Britain? What's the deal there? Oh boy, we are going to get into some political hatred here. Um, it's a really, really, it's it's actually a very interesting question because I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, there's a lot of Scottish riders, for example, like and even Scottish racers, like um, Sir Jackie Stewart back in the day in F1. I think he used the Union Jack as well. But it's always something that I've kind of wanted to know the answer to as well. So I'm glad you asked it. Like, for example, Jonathan, I think I'm not going to talk about the north of Ireland where I'm from because that's a very, very contentious issue. I'm just going to stick with the Scottish and the English. I think with Scotland, because Scotland's still part of the United Kingdom, they use the UK flag instead of the actual blue and white St. Andrews flag. And then if you're English, obviously they use the Union Jack because that is their flag anyway. But it's a brilliant question, Leo. Um, I'm actually glad you asked it because I would like to see more of the home nations using their own flags personally, but that's just my opinion. But I think that's the reason why, because Scotland's still part of the UK, they use the UK flag. That would be my guess anyway. But why is Darren Till fighting for the English flag? Or why is... Uh, what's, what's the Scottish uh, light heavyweight called? Paul Craig. Yeah, Paul Craig. Burju Craig. Yeah. Oh, wait, we can't say that. We can't say that. <laughs> He is fighting a Scottish flag, English flag there until Leon Edwards, English flag. So I don't understand when do you get to uh, represent England and when do you get to represent Great Britain, you know? Well, it's 
it's something we could do a whole podcast about flag identity from the UK. Um, but the thing with Leon Edwards, for example, is that Leon Edwards, um, I think, was born in Jamaica and was brought to the UK when he was a child. So he uses the Jamaican flag as well. No, Darren he uses Till, the English flag. Or he uses Leon the English flag interchangeably. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Paul Craig, the whole Scottish thing again. And then Darren Till is very different again. Because he's from Liverpool, Liverpudlians generally consider themselves more Scouse than English. It's it's a whole handling, I'm going to be honest. But uh, flag identity is a really interesting issue. It's something I hope we cover again in the future. I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I don't want to get ca- cancelled for it. Yeah, so um, I guess there isn't much to talk about uh, Model 3. Because I have no fucking idea what happened in the middle of the race. And also the championship is decided. So yeah. I uh I think we have two weeks of a break now before Valencia, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess uh Augusto Fernandez will wrap the thing up. I guess uh Peko will wrap the thing up. And uh yeah, we will see each other after Valencia again. It would appear so indeed. Enjoyed talking to you and good night, everybody. Likewise. Uh, Thank you very much, everybody, for watching. As always, we really appreciate your company and your viewership. And we will see you at the end of the line, at the end of the finish line in Valencia. Goodbye.